It is an enormous privilege for me to join you here, not only to uh, participate in this conference, but to renew links of friendship and uh, spiritual intimacy, shared heritage with uh, not a few of you who have already stopped me in the hall and said, welcome and nice to see you again and that sort of thing. Um, it, it is a, a great privilege for me to be here. Without further ado, I would like to direct your attention to Isaiah 56 and 57. Isaiah 56 and 57. And I shall begin by reading those two chapters. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Come, all you beasts of the field, come and devour all you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. They seek their own gain. Come, each one cries. Let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer, and tomorrow will be like today, or even far better. The righteous perish, and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away, and no one understands. No one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. But you, come here, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Who are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? 
Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. The idols among you, the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. Indeed, they are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. In view of all this, should I relent? You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. Behind your doors and your doorposts, you have put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you uncovered your bed. You climbed into it and opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose beds you love, and you looked with lust on their naked bodies. You went to Moloch with olive oil and increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away. You descended to the very realm of the dead. You wearied yourself by such going about but you would not say, it is hopeless. You found renewal of your strength, and so you did not faint. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me and have neither remembered me nor taken this to heart? Is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? I will expose your righteousness and your works, and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry, for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger. Yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. To understand these chapters well, we must remind ourselves where they fall in the prophecy of Isaiah. In chapters 38 to 55, the preceding chapters, Isaiah predicts the Babylonian captivity of the people and their return. So Isaiah, living at the end of the 8th century, sees the destruction of the northern tribes as they're taken off by the Assyrians, but he looks into the future and sees 140 or so years down the road the destruction of the southern tribes, still future to him. 
Jerusalem will fall in 586 B.C. People will go off into captivity into the Babylonians. And then he also predicts a time that, that will see the return of God's people to the promised land. But now, having predicted these things in chapters 38 to 55, Isaiah probes the experiences and circumstances of the returnees. And that becomes the canvas, the, the backdrop on which he paints his third portrait of the Messiah. The first portrait of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah is found in chapters 6 to 37. It's the portrait of the Messiah as the king. Here is where he is called Emmanuel, God with us. And then in words that we sing every Christmas season in, to the tune of Handel's Messiah, we, we, we remember that one is coming who will, who will reign on the throne of David, whose government will increase. There will be no end to that government. He is the king, and he will be called the wonderful counselor, the, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And then the Messiah is presented in the second place, chapters 38 to 55, as the servant. The vision of a servant focuses in until you get the vision of the one individual who is wounded for our transgressions, who is bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him. With his stripes we are healed. And now in our chapters, the Messiah is going to be presented as the conqueror, the one who conquers not only the hearts of his own people, the covenant people of God, but brings in men and women from all over the world, from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, this conquering monarch. The conqueror is especially portrayed in 59.14 to 63.6, chapters that will be covered later in this series. So, although the book has already portrayed a, a completed salvation, not least in Isaiah 53, that great suffering servant song, he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Yet, the people are still waiting for salvation. We read, this is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right for my salvation is close at hand. In one sense, the suffering servant is pictured as already having done the work, and yet the people are still waiting for the salvation to come. Now, that is really akin to our situation. We possess salvation. Christ cried, it is finished. Sin has been expiated. The just wrath of God has been turned aside. We have been restored to fellowship with the living God. He was wounded for our transgressions. The price is paid. And yet, we die. We still wallow in sin. The church suffers and languishes. And we join with Christians in every age and cry, yes, even so, come, Lord Jesus. So we are called to obedient faith, 56.1 in the first place, while we wait for the conqueror to triumph in the final showdown with all the hostile powers in 63, one and following. There the language is really stark. We read, who is this coming from Edom, from Basra with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor? 
striding forward in the greatness of his strength. It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. This picture of a conquering monarch who, who destroys all the hostile powers. Do you see? Until finally you end up in our section with a vision of a new heaven and a new earth in Isaiah 65. So we find ourselves then in this section of the book of Isaiah, 56 and following, with the triumph of God in one sense already having taken place back in Isaiah 53, yet the people of God still languishing, waiting, waiting for God to come again, the promise of, of the Messiah coming as conquering, victorious king, and the anticipation of the new heaven and the new earth. So now we come, with that background, to our two chapters, 56 and 57. We may proceed in three parts. Number one, portrait of a righteous God who welcomes all contrite sinners. Portrait of a righteous God who welcomes all contrite sinners. On the one hand, verses 1 and 2, Maintain justice, do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Do what is right. What is right in Isaiah is whatever God declares to be right. It is what pleases Him. Maintain justice, do what is right. My righteousness will soon be revealed. And indeed, one of the test cases for such righteousness is care with respect to the Sabbath. Sabbath without desecrating it. In other words, it's possible to keep the Sabbath and desecrate it. There is a form of religiosity that formally co coheres to rules, but, but w which is heartless, w which indicates no transformation. Dean Swift, who wrote Gulliver's Travels, writing in the 18th century, says of certain fashionable ladies of his day, they were so busy being religious that they had no time to say their prayers. So it's possible, in a sense, to observe the Sabbath and desecrate it. But what is called for here is the kind of righteousness that doesn't desecrate the Sabbath. It's, it's a mark of orientation toward God that is doing what He wants from the heart. That's on the one hand, verses 1 and 2. On the other hand, God is portrayed as welcoming, if you please, the foreigner and the eunuch. Now, a little background is necessary there. Don't forget, this is set in the context where what is being envisaged is the return of God's covenant people to the land, of God's covenant people to Himself, of God's covenant people to faithful witness in the land of Israel. And now God turns around and says, yeah, but that's not enough. I'm going to accept the sons of aliens, foreigners. Oh, there was a procedure for admitting Gentiles to the house of Israel. They could become Jews themselves, but now what is being envisaged is, is such a sweep of such people that now they are being added to the people of God to make a larger corpus. And the eunuch well, in Deuteronomy 23, God bans eunuchs from joining the covenant assembly, possibly those who had been castrated for pagan cultic reasons. They were viewed as 
fruitless, not able to bear the next generation. Dried stalks, the text says. A dry tree, the eunuch complains. But God says, to the eunuchs who keep my ways, hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. It is one of countless pictures from the Old Testament of the ways in which God overturns our categories and restores the years, the locusts of Eden, and brings life out of dry ground and fruit where there was only salted earth. And the aliens who have been entirely removed from the people of God, they're, they're here now too. I will give them an everlasting name. They will endure forever. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, to who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. Until you get the glorious picture in verse 8. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, that's the overarching theme of the surrounding chapters, He gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others. I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. One inclusive people. Christians who know their Bibles can't help but think of John 10 where Jesus prays not only for the sheep of this flock but he will bring in other sheep as well. Christians who know their Bibles cannot help but think of Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 with men and women drawn from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, all predicted by Isaiah 700 years and more before the coming of Christ, harking back to the promise to Abraham 2,000 years before the coming of Christ. Through the seed of Abraham will come blessing for the nations. Look around this room. Go ahead, look around. Look at the faces. They're not all white. <laughs> and Metro Toronto is not the Metro Toronto of my youth. And around the tribe on the last day, there will be Kamba speakers there and Kikuyu. There will be Hutus. There will be various heritages in the vast Chinese population. There will be Swedes there and Indians. There will be Latin Americans there. There will be some Japanese. Even the odd American. Men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. For God himself has declared, even while he sees the corruption in his own people, he says, on the one hand, maintain justice. And on the other hand, I will bring in a people. And it's too small a thing as God says elsewhere. It's too small a thing for me to bring in only the Israelites. 
I will bring in foreigners. And those who are cast off because they are viewed as fruitless, eunuchs, not productive people, I will make them fruitful. Give them a name of incredible significance in the temple of our God. Here's the first portrait then. Portrait of a righteous God who welcomes all contrite sinners. Number two. Portrait of an idolatrous people whose righteousness is foul. Portrait of an idolatrous people whose righteousness is foul. 56.9 to 57.13. Begin, first of all, with the utter failure of the leaders, 56.9 to 12. The references to Israel's watchmen, the guardians, the people who are supposed to be protecting the people who see the enemy coming and from their places of refuge and vantage, the towers, they, they, they don't see anything. They're, they're blind. And, and the shepherds, halfway through verse 11, who are supposed to be teaching the people and guarding the flock and and serving as kings and priests, shepherd regularly refers to such leaders, they, they lack understanding. Look at the description. They're blind, verse 10. Watchmen who are blind? That's really helpful. They all lack knowledge. They're ignorant. They are all mute dogs. That is, they can't bark to give the warnings. They're lazy. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. That is, they're fastened on their own wants and needs, appetites of various sorts. They are without shepherding skills, verse 11. They are aflame with their own preferred sins. They all turn to their own way. They seek their own gain. That's one of Isaiah's preferred expressions. They have gone their own way, as opposed to God's way. In that sense, there are many original sins. Come, each one cries, let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer, addicted. They can't read their own times. Tomorrow will be like today, or even far better. Does this sound vaguely familiar? When leaders in political realms and business realms and ecclesiastical realms cannot any longer effectively warn the people against the judgment to come. They've got no bark left. They don't even see the problem. They're more interested in their own pleasures than in shepherding the people under their charge. And they're hugely optimistic. Tomorrow will be like today or even far better. We've just come through the bloodiest century in history. Quite apart from war, millions and millions and millions of people slaughtered. Perhaps 20 million Ukrainians. It's estimated up to 50 million Chinese. How many millions in tribal conflicts? 
Then all the regional skirmishes, and that's apart from two world wars. And so we come to the end of the century, and Fukuyama, in 93, writes a book, The End of History, by which he means not that history has actually come to an end, but that history as we know it, which is, is full of, of conflict and war and, and so on, comes to an end because the Russian superpowers died, communism is just about over, we're told. You wonder what he was thinking of, of about China. But communism is just about over, and, 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 and so now there might be 300 years or so of minor skirmishes, but basically life's going to get a lot better. We're all going to become nice, happy, pious democracies, and, and we'll live happily ever after. What? I read that book and I thought to myself, either... Fukuyama's right, or Jesus is right, but they can't both be right. Jesus speaks of wars and rumors of wars. Be not dismayed, the end is not yet. I cannot think of a single reason, biblical, theological, historic, economic, or political, why the 21st century should not be more bloody than the 20th. Can you? But tomorrow will be like today, or even far better. And we do not see in the decaying of discipline, in the loss of love for truth, in the endless appeal to victimization, in the endless brokenness of culture and manners and courtesy and dignity, let alone revelation and, 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 and gospel truth, we cannot see the impending hand of God's judgment upon us. But these warnings are said in the context of verse 9. Did you notice that? God himself saying, Come, all you beasts of the field, come and devour all you beasts of the forest. Another metaphor with God calling the beast to destroy the land because of the sins of the leaders. And then after talking about the leaders, we find a further depiction of a strangely divided society, 57, 1 to 13. On the one hand, the righteous, verses 1 and 2, and on the other hand, the perverse, verses 3 to 13. But what is said about the righteous is a shocker. The righteous perish. Literally, they're gathered away. Gathered away from this planet. Gathered away from this life. Gathered away from this culture. Gathered away in death. The devout are taken away. And no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. That is, they enter into peace bound up with their death. They are gathered to their fathers, to use the old-time expression. They are, they are gathered to the presence of God. They enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. So in this portrayal of culture, the decline of the numbers of men and women of integrity, of genuine, transparent righteousness, of commitment to truth, of moral and spiritual and political and economic integrity, 
who are righteous in their use of time, righteous in their use of money, righteous in their conduct, and above all, righteous before God because they seek His way and His will. They, they seem to be declining. They don't stand up in the land anymore. They're taken away. They're dying off. And it's all right for them. They're gathered to peace. And we're what's left. In other words, it's a stellar portrait of culture in decay. And no one takes it to heart. We want to get rid of those old fogies in any case, a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. Don't they understand the times are changing? And no one takes it to heart. And on the other hand, But you come here, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Or as one translation puts it, sons of a witch, seed of an adulterer and a working prostitute. Now don't misunderstand the language. This is not saying that if you were born of a prostitute, therefore you are necessarily bad. It's got nothing to do with that. Rather, the seed of something, the son of something, portrays what you are. So, for example, some people in the Old Testament are called sons of Belial. Belial means worthlessness. If someone calls you a son of Belial, it's not because your father's worthless. It's because you are so worthless yourself that you belong to the worthless family. Likewise, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. In other words, God is the supreme peacemaker, and so if you're busy making peace, you're acting like God. You're Godish along that axis, do you see? It identifies you. It shows who you are. So then what Isaiah is doing is appealing to a metaphor that runs right through the Old Testament by which apostasy is likened to adultery. In adultery, one spouse betrays another spouse. In apostasy, the people betray their God. That is such a powerful theme as it drives from Deuteronomy right through the Old Testament that in one Old Testament prophecy, the prophecy of Hosea, God Almighty presents Himself as the Almighty cuckold, the Almighty betrayed husband. Do you ever think of God as the cuckolded husband? That's the way God dares to present himself. It's a picture of hurt, of shame, loss of dignity, disrupted relationship, broken vows, deceit, which is exactly what takes place in adultery. But far more shameful is the deceit of God's nominal people betraying Him. On the one hand is a marriage covenant. On the other hand is the covenant that God made with His people at Sinai. And both lie broken. So many of the pagan religions of the day had their idols, their sacrificial points and so on, on hilltops. That accounts for some of the language. 
You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. One of the gods, the god Moloch, did encourage its worshipers to sacrifice their own children. Moloch was portrayed as a great big stone god holding a, a pot, and under that pot, a stone pot, was a flame that heated the, the pot until it was almost glowing, and babies were thrown into that pot, screaming as they died quickly in the horrible heat, a sacrifice to, to please Moloch. And now some of the Israelites are going that far in their paganism? Moloch is mentioned specifically in verse 9. You went to Moloch with olive oil and increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away. You descended to the very realm of the dead. You went to hell with your, with your sacrifices. And although you came to an end of yourself again and again and again, you wouldn't admit it. You couldn't even look at yourself in the mirror and say, all this stuff is hopeless, verse 10. No, no, you found renewal of your strength and so you did not faint. What does God say in the wake of all of this? I will expose your righteousness and your works and they will not benefit you. Isn't that stunning? I will expose not your sins. They're bad enough. He's just spent the last ten verses exposing them. I will expose your righteousness. That's a theme that keeps recurring in the prophecy of Isaiah. For example, in Isaiah 64, verse 6, we read, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, like the wind our sins sweep us away. Or in chapter 58, verse 1, shout it back, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. But in the following verses, it all is disclosed. It's all a sham. It's all two-faced. It's hypocritical. They have a superficial interest in righteousness. And God comes along and says, I will expose their righteousness. The closest New Testament passage to this is John 16, where we're told that the paraclete, when he comes, will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The context shows that he will convict the world of its sin, its righteousness, as in Isaiah, and its judgment. It's wrong in its sin. It's wrong in its righteousness. It's wrong in its judgment. Here's a strangely divided society and the larger portrait of an idolatrous people whose righteousness 
is foul. And finally, portrait of a persevering God who is the only hope for the God damned. Portrait of a persevering God who is the only hope for the God damned. Verses 14 to 21. The most important thing to observe in these verses is that the people whom God saves are those who are sinners. Start in verse 16. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry. That is, he could accuse them, but he won't do so forever. If I were always angry, they would faint away because of me. They would melt. They would be destroyed. The very people I've created. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger. Yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their ways, their sinful ways, but I will heal them. In other words, here is a portrait of a persevering God who is the only hope for the God damned. But somehow, somehow in this portrait is a picture of their contrition, verses 14 and 15. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people, for this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. But also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Isaiah knows what he's writing about here. For earlier on in his book, in chapter 6, in the well-known vision, he describes the time when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he heard the seraphim crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that God is holy? Some people pursue the etymology of the word, the root of the word, and say what it means is that God is separate. But are the angels merely crying, Separate, separate, separate is the Lord God Almighty. It sort of lacks something, doesn't it? Some say it means that He's moral. So are the angels merely saying, moral, moral, moral is the Lord God Almighty? It's more than that. Holy in the Bible works in concentric circles of meaning. And at its core, holy is almost an adjective for God Himself. God is God. In that sense, God alone is holy. God is God. And then the things associated with Him are holy because... because they are associated with Him. So the shovel that is used to take the ash from the high altar is said to be a holy shovel. It's not moral. It's not God. 
but it's used only for God-related sacrifices. Do you see? And then people are said to be holy because they're not God, but they are so to be separated unto God that they act in certain kinds of ways. And then notions of morality begin to come in. Do you see? And so far out does this word go that even pagan priests can sometimes be called holy men. Not because they're God, not even because they're rightly related to God, but because at least they're concerned with the domain of the spiritual as opposed to the merely physical world. Do you see? It's a word which has various domains depending on, on how close you get into the center and how far out you go. But at its heart, to say that God is holy is to say that God is God. So that you fill the word holy with all the biblical descriptions of God. Holy is the summarizing content. God is God. God is holy. And when I saw him, Isaiah said, I fell at his feet as dead. He had the same reaction as Peter had to Jesus when Jesus filled the boat with fish. Depart from me, I am a sinful man. What we need in our generation is such a renewed vision of God with all of that means. We see him as holy. Then we discover to our infinite surprise that this transcendent God who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, who lives in the high and lofty place beyond us, above us, transcending space and time, he also chooses to live with the contrite and the broken. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, and also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Do you hear the tension there? On the one hand, God says, I live with the broken and the contrite. And on the other hand, he says in the following verses, as we've just seen, I come to you and you're not broken and contrite. In, in fact, I'm enraged at you. And what saves you is that I... I stop my rage and I re reach down and I heal you anyway. In other words, contrition and repentance are demanded. And at the same time, God says, and you never live up to it, do you? He comes and saves the broken. Do you know there are many passages in the Old Testament that have that kind of tension built right in? One of the most remarkable is in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34... Moses is hiding in a cleft in a rock. He is asked to see something of God's glory. Show me your glory. And God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. No one can see my face and live. If you could see my face, you would be destroyed. But hide here. So Moses hides in a cleft in a rock. God covers him up, and he intones certain words and then Moses is permitted to stick his head out and see something of the trailing edge of the afterglow of the passing glory of the Lord. And what are the words that are intoned? 
Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, listen carefully, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the one side. On the other side, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Stick both of those things in your pipe and smoke them. What do you do with that? On the one hand, he's the God who forbears, who forgives, who, who looks after people, who, who bears their sin. He's the God of, of, of grace and truth. And on the other hand, he won't forget their sin. He's going to punish the ungodly. And those two themes pummel, pummel their way through Scripture. They pummel their way through Scripture. Moses uh, in the second millennium B.C. Now we're down to the first millennium B.C. with Isaiah. He's the God who, who heals the, the sinful and, and demands, on the other hand, that they be contrite. Where, where is the hope in all of this? And I tell you, as these two themes, God's holiness, God's mercy, God's holiness, God's mercy, God's holiness, and God's mercy, pummel through Scripture and pummel through Scripture, they, 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 they simply remain in tension until finally they clash. And we call that place Golgotha. Isaiah's already given a brief glimpse of it in his second portrait of the Messiah, the suffering servant who bears our sin in his own body on the tree. And he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Here is the portrait of a persevering God who is the only hope for the God damned. Now, what shall we take away from these two chapters? Three things. Number one. We cannot bring in revival ourselves. Not only because it's not in our gift, it's in God's, but also because our sins are too great. Do you see, those who act as if they can bring in revival themselves are acting the way Jews did, some Jews did in conservative Palestine in the first century. Some rabbis actually argued that if only Israel would observe one Sabbath perfectly, the Messiah would come. In which case, revival comes not because of God's infinite mercy, but because we've earned it. But one of the lessons that Isaiah learns in Isaiah 6 when he sees the vision of a holy God is how sinful he is. In the previous chapters, he's saying, woe to this group and woe to that group and woe to that group and woe to this group. Now he sees something of the holiness of God and he says, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Do you see, one of the dangers when we hunger for revival one of the dangers is that we look at the surrounding culture, whether here in the United States or the United Kingdom or wherever, we look at the surrounding culture and 
we recognize the declension. We recognize the moral failure. We, we, we recognize the morass. But deep down what we really think is, but at least I'm not part of that. But Isaiah's reaction is just the opposite. Once he sees something of God, he says, I am part of that. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. So today, for example, it's easy to be in consternation over moral decay and adultery and rampant sexuality of the age and homosexual marriage and whatever it else it is that is upsetting you, but at least I'm not part of that. But you are, and so am I. We're part of this overly sexualized culture. It's part of the advertising scheme. It's in the available pornography. It's in the way we look at pleasure. Our thinking gets distorted about what marriage is. Marriage is primarily about two people pleasuring one another. That's all there is. So as to stop people from doing that. And gradually, gradually, we become part of the problem. At one level of our brains, we can say, yeah, there's a problem here, and we distance ourselves from it. In another part of our brains, quite frankly, we've been swamped too. And we need to begin by saying, we are a people of unclean lips and unclean minds and unclean actions, and we live amongst a people of unclean lips and unclean minds and unclean action. And our eyes have seen God. We cannot bring revival in ourselves. Number two, but we can set our faces to seek the Lord. We can set our faces to seek the Lord, to repent, to ask for His grace. Whether soon or in the distant future, we can seek the Lord. God does demand contrition and repentance. That's what He demands. So that after Isaiah's lips are touched with a live coal from the altar in the vision of Isaiah 6. And God says, who will go for us? Whom shall we send? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Don't misunderstand that. That's not Isaiah saying, I'm your guy. Send me, I'm a tough one. Any job. No, he says, please, please, will I do? Can you use me? Hmm? And Isaiah is then commissioned so to preach that in that culture people will be unhearing, unrepentant, unconverted for decades. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here am I, send me. And so God says, go. Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull. Close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. How would you like that preached at your ordination service? And Isaiah says, okay, okay, okay fair enough. For how long, Lord? What he means is, does this go on for 10 years and then we have revival? Hmm? 40 years? I'm just a young guy at the moment. 40 years, I'd be an old guy, but, but maybe at 40 years, then you bring in revival? Will that do, Lord? I don't mind being the messenger of judgment, but, but will there be revival at the end of it? 
How long? And God answered. Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. That's how long. Because there are times when God has so declared judgment to come that you can pray for revival till the cows come home and you will not get it. And yet, and yet, God is far more merciful than we deserve. And He's still the God who, while inhabiting eternity, the high and lofty place, makes His dwelling with those who are broken, humble, and of a contrite spirit. And sometimes God sends great, great revival. We are not to despise the day of small things. We are not so to hold out for revival that we cannot be faithful in days that are difficult. But we may still remember that God is far, far, far more merciful than our sins deserve. And although Isaiah, by external account, dies a martyr's death under the next wicked king, Manasseh, pursued by soldiers into the wood when he is an old man, hides in a tree, a rope is tied around the tree, and the tree is cut down. That, according to very good tradition, is how Isaiah dies, not as a hero of the Reformation. Yet, 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 God has again and again in mercy brought in revival in Europe, in parts of Asia, in parts of North America. And we may beg of Him to do it again. For in the third and final place, as God is our judge, so also is He our only hope. Let us pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are righteous and holy and true. And we thank you that by the mercies of Christ you nevertheless have come to us and saved us from our sins, thoroughly as undeserved as that is. We thank you that despite our sins you have come to the church again and again in reformation and revival. And although we cannot claim to deserve it, we beg of you to have mercy yet again. Not because we win it or earn it, but rather despite our sins, because of our need, because of our helplessness, we beg of you to lay bare your arm and do it again. And if you will not hearken to us, Lord God, then we beg for grace to persevere and be faithful in small corners as well as in great, to love holiness and integrity, to be conscious and aware of our own sin, our participation in a damned culture. Have mercy upon us, Lord God, in such a way that Christ Jesus 
is greatly exalted again in our time. We ask for his glory and his people's good. Amen.